0: This episode is dedicated to my uncle marty Rodic, 1952 to 2017. today's dead idea this is the epilogue to our series on titoism the ideology of the former yugoslavia under its communist dictator tito we're going to explore why titoism went extinct and indulge in some alternate history where it lives on instead in an alternate timeline and finally we are going to get a little personal we started this series with a prologue that was a personal reflection and we're going to end that way with some final thoughts on ethnicity family and nationalism that's what we're talking about today on dead ideas It's been a rough year for my family, and especially rough this last week. Just last night, as I record this, my uncle Marty Rodich passed away after nearly a year in and out of the hospital with pneumonia complications. It was for the best, as it was getting pretty clear that his condition was not going to improve, so at long last he made the decision to die a natural death rather than prolong his suffering indefinitely and uh, take his fate into his own hands, as it were. So he was taken off the ventilators, and he managed to hang on for another three days, actually. In fact, just yesterday he seemed so strong that he might go on for another couple of weeks, it seemed. And he spent a good 30 minutes telling Rachel and I how to mulch the leaves on our lawn. (laughs) But at long last, he gave up the ghost in the evening last night, and now he's at rest. Marty was named for the Martin Rodic that we talked about in Episode 1 of this series, the one with a streak of that Tito Ballsiness, who came from Slovenia to Minnesota to work in the iron mines only to get blacklisted for cold cocking as foreman, then went into the lumber industry and later into the bootlegging racket. So that was Martin. And then Martin's son was Marvin, who we talked about in episode two, who was an air mechanic in World War II and always seemed to have a secret stash of illicitly acquired provisions, squirreled away for his crewmen. And then Marvin's son was my uncle Marty, one of six siblings, actually. And Marty was born in 1952, and although as our family got more settled and prosperous, we probably lost some of that old-world underdog grit that Tito had and that Martin had and that Marvin had, I do have to still say that my Uncle Marty had some quite impressive qualities all his own. He was always a tinkerer, like Marvin, but he was interested more in electricity, and he might have gone on to be quite an accomplished electrician, but in 1980, the same year Tito died, actually, he suffered a car accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down and only partially in control of his upper limbs. But nevertheless, despite that physical condition, Marty commanded a mental control that carried on some of that old world do-or-die spirit. For example, he could mentally visualize places and items in extraordinary detail. I, I, I can't even imagine or even relate to how he could do that. I mean, he could describe every square inch of his house and property, including all the items in it even in the hidden nooks and crannies that his wheelchair-bound condition didn't allow him to personally see or interact with physically at all anymore because it'd be around where he couldn't, you know, get down to see it or that kind of thing. He would have to just rely on other people telling him what's there and then he would it would be there in his mind and he could just, he could call that up at any point. And I have trouble just calling up what dinner I had last night, but, <laughs> but he developed that because, you know, that was what his condition forced him to become. And he could do that even for places that he hadn't visited in decades, like our cabin property up north near Ely, Minnesota, where, where we actually recorded our Anti-Witches series for this podcast. And 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 Marty would use this ability to help Marvin and his siblings work on motors and whatnot, and he would tell them what widgets to turn deep down inside these motors and whatnot. And he couldn't personally see at all into there, but it was all in his mind. And that, that's the kind of mental clarity that he was able to cultivate. And over the years, I actually tried many times to get him to talk a little bit about his inner experience, but but you see, he's just, he, he was too reticent of a person for that. I mean, he's not an academic kind of intellectual like me, and he, he just wasn't the type to talk about his feelings, that just wasn't him. He was a far more practical sort of guy, but I do have to imagine that the The clarity with which he experienced things in his mind must have been extraordinary so that is my uncle marty who just passed away last night and this episode is dedicated to him so as we talk today about how titoism died there's an extra layer of meaning for me all right so the end of titoism to wrap up this series i want to talk very, very briefly, about the Ten-Day War that led to Slovenia's independence and initiated the breakup of Yugoslavia. And then I want to talk about how this dead idea died, that is, how Titoism died, the idea of Titoism. Even though it didn't have to, I mean, Titoism didn't have to die. There could have been an alternate timeline where it went on, and we're going to indulge in that a little bit here, and explore that fantasy where Titoism continues. And then finally, I want to wrap up this whole series with a story of family, because that's what this series has really been about for me. So that's the plan. So let's get to it. So after Tito died in 1980, Titoism went on. But as we've already heard in this series, I mean, the writing was on the wall. I mean, the the complicated system of government that was set up to succeed Tito, with every ethnicity and every republic getting a uh, representative, and Each republic having veto power, so that any proposal that anybody made, if it wasn't exactly in the interests of your ethnicity and your republic, you basically just shot it down, and so absolutely nothing got done. It was a completely unworkable government system. Just everything went down the drain. And this situation allowed what might otherwise have been fringe groups to gain a lot of influence, specifically nationalist demagogues like. Milosevic and other guys, but of course, you know, Milosevic is destined to become the one that that we all hear of because of what happens in the Yugoslav War. But see, these these nationalists are the only ones who are really offering any kind of real action, any way to actually get anything done. So they get they get listened to and they rise in power. But Milosevic and many of these guys are specifically Serbian nationalists. And that further alienates the other ethnicities, such as the Slovenians, who were already feeling like they had no real reason to stay part of the country. And between Slovenia and Croatia, they were the economic powerhouses of Yugoslavia, and they felt like the rest of the country was really just leeching off of them and kind of dragging them down. And what's the point, really? So with the growing influence of Serbian nationalists like Milosevic, the Slovenians finally decide enough is enough, and they make a bid to break away. And the Ten Day War gained Slovenia its independence for the first time in the entire history of Slovenian ethnicity. And I I don't want to go into too much detail into this war, or the Yugoslav War that followed it, which tore the country apart and had all the horrors of, you know, Sarajevo and Bosnia and all the stuff that we're already familiar with. Because the Lesser Bonapartes, one of my favorite podcasts, did a series exactly on the Ten Day War, and they did a decent job of covering basically the incompetence with which the Yugoslav army allowed Slovenia to gain its independence so quickly and easily. So I'm just going to give you the super short version and then you can go to the Lesser Bonapartes for the longer version. So the super short version is the war for independence went quick and easy for three basic reasons. First. Most of the Yugoslav army personnel that the Slovenians were facing were themselves Slovenians. So they were sympathetic and basically put up their hands and joined the Slovenian side at the first conflict. So that was a big mark in their favor. Then second, the government left over after Tito, as I already said, was completely incapable. And everyone in Yugoslavia pretty much knew the writing was on the wall anyway. So the resistance to breakup was half-hearted, let's say. And finally, the third reason is the Serb nationalists who climbed to power like Milosevic were not really that interested in Slovenia because there were very few Serbs in Slovenia. They were far more interested in places like Bosnia that had significant Serb minorities, and so the war came to be concentrated elsewhere than Slovenia. Slovenia itself was able to break away in only 10 days, and thereafter was spared most of the horrors that we associate the Yugoslav War. That's the super short version. Again, for the long version, check out the Lesser Bonapartes. You got it all there. Now, what I do want to go into in a little bit of depth is not the death of the nation specifically, but rather the death of the idea. This is dead ideas after all, so we have to talk about how this dead idea died. How did Titoism go extinct? Well, we've already been talking about it especially in the last episode when we talked to Alex Cruikshanks about the national question, because it really was this pesky thing called nationalism that did it in in the end. And it really didn't have very much at all to do with the ideas of Titoism per se. Yes, a little bit, sure, but that wasn't the decisive factor. So do not believe by any means the idiotic opinions that you can find in copious quantities by cruising around internet blogs and forums... That will tell you that Titoism obviously didn't work, because Yugoslavia is now gone. I mean, it did work, at least reasonably well. Probably better than any other version of communism at the time. Nor should you believe the equally stupid forum opinions that you can find in equally copious quantities. That Titoism obviously did work, because Yugoslavia had a prospering and growing economy while it was around. There were other reasons for that, too, like copious foreign aid, for starters. That wasn't entirely due to the ideas of Titoism either. The prosperity of Titoism when it was alive and the manner in which it died didn't really have entirely to do with the ideas of Titoism per se. You see, it, it really could have gone on for much longer if it weren't for the problem of all the local ethnic rivalries. One note of clarification that I want to add here. I'm pushing the idea that it was really nationalism that took down Titoism. I'm pushing that theme pretty hard, but I do want to acknowledge that it's not the ancient hatreds theory that Alex alluded to last episode. It's not that it was uh, just hatred that was endemic to the people, that just couldn't be overcome, but rather that that hatred was there and it was exploited specifically by leaders like Milosevic and others like Tujman for example. And that is really what took down Titoism. So in other words, it was there among the people, but it wasn't like inevitable, like there's something endemic to their DNA that took down the country. No, rather, it was something that was recent, it was remembered, and it was there to be exploited, and then it was exploited. That's what I mean here when I say that the national question is what took down Titoism. And had the Yugoslavs actually managed To overcome those ethnic divides the way that Tito always said they did in all of his speeches, that was really a fake it till you make it kind of thing when he would say that in his speeches. And they almost made it, but they didn't. The divides nevertheless remained. Had they overcome those divides the way Tito said they did, you know, he could have really forged a united national identity, and Titoism could have been viable. In the long term. That's what it sure feels like to me, having explored into this a bit. So now I just want to meditate for a little bit on what makes for an ethnic identity and what that means for a people, and then we'll explore what happened, you know, what if Titoism, you know, actually continued on. Okay, so as we saw in episode one on the rise of the Slovene identity, an ethnic identity gets formed and the technical term for this is ethnogenesis, as I've learned since then, since making that episode, an ethnic identity gets formed gradually by a long and organic process. And then an ethnic identity might grow, or be encouraged to grow, into nationalism, which often involves a considerable amount of deliberate intention on the part of writers and artists and politicians and intellectuals and all these kinds of people to actually intentionally create a sense of unity among a people and to imagine something in common, something to, you know, unite them, to collectively dream up a fellow feeling that can actually hold the people together, even if it's all just a fantasy that was intentionally made up. And it's the same fantasy that connects me to my Slovenian roots. I mean, what does an incident of blood have to do with me, really? I mean, if you if you look at the actual variation in DNA between me and Slovenians and me and just the average person in America, it's going to be an equal amount of diversity in terms of DNA. I'm not talking about like you know the kinds of special um, markers that are left over in your dna that you can get from you know doing an ancestry test like 23andme or something but just basic like how closely related are our genes you know it's just it's insignificant from a scientific perspective so this connection between you and like a whole ethnicity somewhere is really imaginary scientifically speaking but nevertheless we we make a big deal out of it so what does this have to do with me, really? I mean, was it matter that generations back my ancestors came from within a certain imaginary border drawn on a map, and does it really mean anything? Well, for some people it means a whole lot. And it certainly did for those who risked imprisonment, or worse, under Tito's regime, by speaking out about national pride. That was the one thing that Tito was absolutely strict on, was he wasn't going to allow... Sentiments of nationalism to be spoken about because he had the feeling that that was the one thing that could tear up Yugoslavia. And in fact, it did. So call it repressive, kind of, it was, but it also held the country together, so. But anyway, it meant something to those people who risked punishment under Tito's regime in order to talk about that. In order to talk about their national pride. And that imaginary connection, this ethnicity that I'm talking about, certainly also meant something for those who fought and died for their people's independence in the Yugoslav War in the 90s. And it also certainly does for those today in the independent states that now dot the Balkan Peninsula. And it most certainly does for those today in Slovenia who are zealously rooting out any trace of loanwords in the Slovenian language from Serbo-Croatian, which was the sort of common tongue from Tito's Yugoslavia. It was sort of a combination of local Slavic languages and if we were playing Dungeons and Dragons it would be the common tongue, right? <laughs> that's that's how they that's how most people communicated under Tito. And after Yugoslavia died, everything got chopped up. There was no more Subro creation, there was Serbian, there was Croatian, there was Slovenian, there was and so on down the line. And today many people are very strict about their language, including Slovenians. So it certainly means Something to them, that sense of ethnicity, it really, really does it means a whole lot to them now, is that a good thing? I don't know, but Titoism ultimately died because people didn't want to give up hope that it was a good thing that their local nationalisms were a good thing. I mean Titoism didn't die just because Tito himself died and then it petered out. It was this hope that nationalism was a good thing, it was this vestige of, hey, we have something important here, this local nationalism. We haven't been able to talk about it since Tito took power, and now's our big chance. And that was really what did the country in. But, it, but Titoism didn't have to die. If it were not for this question of nationalism, Titoism could have gone on. I mean, there was enough of an idea left over that could have forged a lasting legacy, a lasting national identity for the Yugoslavs. I mean, after Tito died in 1980, the slogan that everybody in the country was chanting was after Tito, Tito. Yes, the man had died, but but the idea lives on. And there was a sense that Tito lived on still. The man had become larger than himself. He was no longer just a person. Now he was an idea. And that's the kind of public sentiment that makes for a myth, you know, an ideological kind of founding father kind of myth. I mean, this is the sort of thing where you might expect a King Arthur kind of legend to arise that says Tito really isn't dead, but just sleeping somewhere in a villa just over the horizon, you know, in a hidden valley between the rugged mountains somewhere between Slovenia and Croatia or whatever ready to come back one day and lead his people once again. That's the kind of story that you get out of a feeling like this and which can serve as the basis for a national identity. And I I suppose that, in a way, sounds weird in a modern secular atheist-communist context because, you know, this sounds like a religious idea and this was a communist state and they were atheist officially. But I, I think you get the point, though. It doesn't have to be religious because... It's feeling, you know, and that's what's at the root of that. It's the kind of feeling that can serve as a basis for a truly united people. And you can imagine an alternate timeline where it does truly unite the people. So now let's let's just kind of imagine that. Let's go into our alternate history here. So imagine, for example, a Yugoslavia that recognizes upon Tito's death in 1980, that the government system that was set up is just stupid, that it's completely unworkable, and they just scrap that. So that that's that's their point of deviation here, okay? And let's say that, you know, out of this conversation, this ferment, that a new strong leader makes a name for himself or herself. Actually I like the idea of a woman succeeding Tito. Uh, it's <laughs> Let, let's call her Tita. I don't know if that's actually, it's probably not a real Yugoslav name, but whatever, I don't care. Let's call her Tita. So Tita makes a name for herself based on this idea that the government system set up is unworkable and we need something else. And she uses the collective grief for Tito, which, as we heard from our interviewees, like Sir John Parrish's, for example, was probably not forced feeling, not fake grief, but probably genuine emotion. And there's actually a really weird but in a way powerful video on YouTube that is like a, a montage of scenes from Tito's death It's very weird it has this really odd uh creepy music behind it, but it's kind of illustrative of the actual feeling that was felt upon Tito's death so it was there was something there that could have been tapped and galvanized into a national identity. So let's say that she does this. Tita takes Tito's trademark slogan, Brotherhood and Unity, and turns it into a political platform and garners enough support that the constitution is amended to allow either another dictatorship led by her or some other system of representative government that's actually workable in some way and doesn't just lead to inaction. This would have prevented the kind of chaos and frustration that allowed fringe groups like these nationalist demagogues that, you know, gave rise to Milosevic to take control. So that never happens in this timeline. Instead, we've got a government led by this Tita. And it's and it's galvanized around Tito's image, turned into a national symbol in perpetuity, this founding father, this culture giver, and Tita thus turns Titoism into a fervent point of national pride. And now, if this were all to happen, if we follow this timeline, I can imagine that within a few generations, the old, I would find it believable that the old ethnic rivalries might actually start to dissolve for real. It was only like a generation during Tito's time that they didn't have of Balkans Peninsula entirely dominated by ethnic rivalries. So it just really wasn't enough time to let that smoldering fire really die out. But I think as you know, new generations are born and, and raised into a sense of united Yugoslav identity, I think that it really would in fact have burned out over two generations or three generations, enough that You know, you wouldn't have had something like the Yugoslav War. You wouldn't have had Sarajevo. You wouldn't have atrocities, you know, committed in Bosnia. I mean, that's that's how it could have gone in this alternate timeline. I, I personally, at least, find that believable. Instead, what actually happened in real history, today we have a Balkans region that's once again divided along ethnic lines, suffering from the trauma of a war with epic atrocities, and no King Arthur Tito, but rather this kind of kitschy, nostalgic Tito, with Tito sugar packets, Tito t-shirts, Tito backpacks, this Yugo nostalgia, or tito nostalgia, which remembers back to a time of relative stability and security and relative prosperity for people compared to today's kind of balkanization of the peninsula, uncertainty in terms of economic and political futures, and so on. So two contrasting timelines, one real, one imagined. Well, you know, Titoism could have gone on, but it didn't. And that's why we're talking about it here on Dead Ideas, because it finally did become a dead idea. And it's mainly because the national question nagged. That's what really did Titoism in. I mean, the, the idea is, oh, we're Slovenians, we want an independent Slovenia. We're Croats, we want an independent Croatia. We're Serbs, we want a greater Serbia. We we're Montenegrins, we're Macedonians, and so on down the line. We're Bosnians, no, wait, we're Bosnian Croats. We're Bosnian Serbs, we're Bosnian Muslims. You know, we're even subdividing ourselves. And so we get this situation that is now making Balkan a dirty word, this Balkanization, the fracturing of a region into smaller and smaller identities along ethnic, racial, and or religious lines. That's what did Titoism in, and that's how Titoism died. Not because it didn't work, whether it did or didn't, as another story. But that's not what did Yugoslavia in. It's because it just couldn't ultimately overcome the history of the peninsula. Local ethnicity was just too strong. There, wasn't, there weren't enough generations for that to really be forgotten so that's what happened there so now having gone through that and and worked through that thought experiment of the alternate timeline and you know seen that really it was ethnicity that tore things apart how does that make me feel now going through the series and as an exploration of my own slovenian ethnicity well i mean again pretty mixed feelings i have to say but maybe for a different reason compared to when I was starting out this series. I mean, I started with the awkward, pimply feeling like I was supposed to have this attachment to my ethnicity and some kind of pride in it, but I really didn't know anything about it, and it all felt quite uncomfortable, you know? The very idea of feeling some connection to other people based on just this imagined identity felt kind of strained and weird. And I guess it still does, but the process of doing this series has... I have to admit, it's taught me something about family and how much some of those connections can mean to people. Connections which are perhaps imaginary, but still somehow are important and very, very human. And many in my family have pursued our ethnicity more than me, like, for example, my Uncle Rick, who learned to speak the language, or my mother and several other of my relatives who have visited Slovenia, Or my cousin, Lorena, who spent a short time there just recently as part of her academic work to become a teacher. And her father, Marty, and this is a different Marty, I'm sorry, there's way too many Martys in my family. Her father went to visit her there and came back full of interest, and he's not even Slovenian, he married into the family. But he came back full of interest about Slovenia, and when I talked to him recently, you could see it in his eyes that there was something more meaningful about his visit than just a trip to another country. It wasn't just encountering... Just another culture, it was specifically about something to do with our family identity, even though he'd married into it. And that's, that's something that's weird, but it's important. And it means something to us. And I don't mean to belabor this point. I think I, we all know it, right? We, we, we all have it in some sense. We, we know that, that that's meaningful to our family. But I'm just trying to highlight something that we'd very often take for granted. I mean, especially in America. And, you know, the root of that feeling of ethnicity is really probably just an extension of the feeling of family. And that, the feeling of family, is that's something that's written into our DNA. I mean, we care about our kin group in ways that go beyond mere friendship and associations. And, I mean, hell, it, it, often we're barely friends with relatives that we nevertheless love. I mean, what's up with that? I mean, that's something very, very at the core of what it means to be human. And I got to see that kind of family bonding this last week as my Uncle Marty lay in the hospital. He probably had more company in the last week than in an average year for him, to be honest. And in fact, by the end, he was actually complaining of having too much company. (laughs) And, you know, even family that had grown estranged came out to talk to him one last time, you know, to say their goodbyes and, Kind of reconnect a little bit because it because it's important because it meant something, and you know we got to learn about mulching the leaves of our lawn and and for Rachel and I you know <laughs> I mean we didn't talk about anything important with Marty well you know in his last moments we talked about mulching the leaves of our lawn you know so it wasn't like uh, the last words of the great Marty Rodich but. <laughs> It wasn't something that was going to make it into a history book. <laughs> but but it doesn't matter, right? Because because it's your family. And because because it's important to you. And because he talked about mulching the leaves of our lawn, because that's what was important to him. And I know that everybody who's listening right now knows exactly what I'm talking about. And that is family. That's family. Now... If you will just just take that sense that that we can all identify with and just imagine it extended a little bit and then you have ethnicity and then extend that a little bit more and then you have nationality and i know it's kind of a crude analogy but it's at the core of it all of it really plays out that basic sense of kin group closeness and connection even though at this point the actual connection the dna the genetic connections is completely illusory. It's it's become imagined at this point, but but that's what's at the root of it. That's the psychology of it. Is it's this basic sense of kin group closeness and connection, and, and so now. The last thing that I want to talk about to close out this epilogue episode, is the widest sense of imagined connection, nationality. Because all this series I've been talking about my ethnicity and how I feel weird about it, but I've said almost nothing about my nationality as an American. I mean, how do I feel about being an American? Especially when contrasting the American identity against what happened in Yugoslavia where the whole national identity just just went down the toilet and you had the fracturing of the country into numerous tiny independent states based on ethnicity. I mean, that's something I, I can't even begin to imagine happening in America. My American identity is not threatened with that danger. I don't feel that at all as a palpable danger. Not at least in 2017 at this point in American history. Perhaps earlier, but not not in 2017. And it's very very strange for me to think of balkanization for me as a 21st century American because my experience is so different. I mean Unlike my ancestors, my Slovenian ancestors, I have not known the experience of living under a foreign empire like they did, largely under the Habsburgs and later the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so on. I, I have not known that. I have not known the experience of having to forge an identity, to create literature in what was, at the time, an obscure language that the Slovenians called their own, but which might well die out if they didn't take very special care of it? English has never been like that for me. My culture has never been like that for me. I have not known the risk of collapse of my culture. So that is, that is a very, very different kind of experience for me as an American compared to the Slovenians. I mean, I'm living in an era when globalization is on the rise and the cultural flavor of that globalization is very much American. And it's not because America is like, the greatest. (laughs) And it it has nothing to do with America being any better than any other country, but it's an incident of history. As the only major power to come out of World War II without having our economic infrastructure bombed to shit, my country did pretty much okay. And we didn't have to have a long period of recovery, basically. So we had a leg up, right? A huge leg up. And then, as the lone remaining superpower after the end of the Cold War, my country was doing more than just all right. It was doing fantastic, right? No more rivals. Great. Uh, So with the spread of American Coca-Cola and Levi's jeans and McDonald's and iPhones and Basically, people all over the world are looking more and more like what I am accustomed to, like what I'm familiar with, like what is comfortable for me. That's my situation as an American in 2017. I mean, the Facebook that I use every day is the very tool that Edward John chose to call me up from Slovenia and tell me his story of life under Tito. He used an American app to do it. He used a thing that I am, you know, just comfortable with to do it. I didn't have to confront. I mean, what a privilege it is for me to not have to confront a foreign-feeling world out there. That's the privilege of being the culture that at any point in history is kind of dominant in your region. It's not unique to Americans, but it's something that we have right now, and it's something that, again, can be very easily taken for granted. What a privilege it is for me, for everyone to adapt to what I'm used to, rather than the other way around, me having to adapt to something else. And what a privilege it is for me to not feel like what I'm used to and emotionally invested in, you know, the way I speak, the language I speak, the way I act, the way I dress, to not feel like that is under threat of extinction. I mean, all this series... I've talked at length about my awkward feelings as a Slovenian, but now this is a whole other level of awkwardness when it comes to the feelings as an American, right? I mean, do I like the fact that cultures all over the world are gradually looking more and more like my own, whether they like it or not? Does that feel good to me? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's comfortable. I mean, it, it makes it easy for me, but does it feel good? I mean, it's just a situation in the world that they have to confront. I don't know. I mean, it reminds me of a time when I studied abroad in Malaysia. I had a girlfriend, and this was long before I met Rachel, and my girlfriend was Kadazan, which is one of the indigenous tribes from the island of Borneo. And let me tell you, the look in her eyes when she said to me, my language is dying, that's something that I will never forget. I've never had to face that. On the same study abroad trip, so I was in Malaysia, which is a Muslim nation, when the World Trade Towers were hit on September 11th. And well, nothing of particular note happened to me personally, in terms of anti-Americanism, an American friend of mine found a note on her dorm room pillow that said, Americans go home. And also, I was in a computer lab at that university recently after it happened, perhaps a day over the day after, and I witnessed one Muslim girl comfort another who was watching the news of what happened. And the words of comfort were, don't worry, the Americans deserve it. And I don't think she saw that I was there. So it wasn't directed at me, but I witnessed it. So, you know, I don't really think that it's America's fault per se, that our culture is felt as imposing upon others. But it's definitely this situation and we probably don't take enough responsibility for it as we should. In any case, the other cultures who are feeling their culture under threat due to the domination of another, in this case American culture, what must that feel like? I can't even imagine. Later, years after my stint in Malaysia and after I graduated, I went to work as an English teacher in Japan which is one of the few places in the world today that has an overall positive feeling toward Americans. There are a few countries that that actually like us. (laughs) I lived there in Japan for five years, and being away from home for so long, that was really the first time I ever felt an inkling of national pride. Not really being proud of everything that my country has ever done, of which some things are certainly not points of pride, but national pride in terms of, this is who I am. Being away from my country so long, it kindled something in me. And that's also at the same time when I started getting interested in my family heritage, because remember, it's all connected. And on vacations back to America, I started visiting relatives to collect stories, many of which are the stories that I've shared in this series, or at least the ones on my mom's side. Maybe someday I'll get to share my dad's side, which is, Swedish, German, and a whole lot else, but has a lot longer history actually in America and is more solidly American-feeling than anything else. In fact, my father's mother, Zoe, likes to say that half of us came over on the Mayflower and the other half was waiting here to greet them. <laughs> and we have stories of the Alaskan gold rush and things like that, so maybe someday I'll get to tell that story too. But it wasn't till I left America for Japan and lived away from the culture for so long that I really got interested in any of it. It's it's just funny how that works. After Japan, I came home and I got married to Rachel, and then we both went abroad to teach English, this time in South Korea. And I remember a school principal there asking me, which do you like better, Japan or Korea? And if you know anything about the long and nasty nationalistic history between those two countries, you know that that is the loaded question of the century. So I think, as I recall, I sidestepped the question by saying something like, I, I like both in different ways. <laughs> and the principal gave this kind of unsatisfied kind of, <laughs> and then he let the question rest. And, but but that, that again, you know, it just, it really shows the difference in relating to your national identity compared to how Americans feel it and the privilege of how Americans don't really have to think about it that much unless they want to, you know, whereas other cultures, it's a forced upon them by their situation. So Rachel and I live in America now, in Minnesota, and I now I do feel some national pride. Maybe a little less every time Trump releases another stupid tweet, but nevertheless, nevertheless, some national pride. I mean, I am an American. It's, it's where I was born, it's how I was raised, it's who I am. Like Tito being born in Croatia, or anyone being born anywhere, It's just a part of me that i can't deny so that's my americanism but as far as what i identify with most actually there's something more than that i'm always interested in other cultures and other perspectives and to see what that's like i've always been eager to experience what it feels like to live on the other side so to speak to see through other eyes and And you can definitely see that in this podcast. I mean, that's the driving force behind Dead Ideas, really, to imagine what it was like for people in entirely other cultures entertaining entirely other ideas that seem eccentric and bizarre to us because they're just so different. And through doing this podcast, I really come to feel a bond with the other cultures that we study here. And that's meaningful for me, even if the bond is imaginary. I am not an ancient Sumerian, (laughs) but I... (laughs) But nevertheless, I come to feel a certain kind of bond with them. It's imaginary, but then so is all ethnicity, so what's the difference, really, you know? (laughs) There's at least a loose analogy to be made there. All right. So that's pretty much our episode for today. That's our epilogue for our series on Titoism. Just as a final note, I'll say that personally, ultimately, in the end, I identify less as Slovenian, or as American, and more as a cosmopolitan. And I mean that in the original sense of the word, like the root meaning sense of the word. Cosmo meaning cosmos or world, Politan, citizen, hence citizen of the world. So I, I feel more like a citizen of the world than I do specifically as Slovenian or as American. I feel those things as well. I mean, it's not an exclusive identity. I am Slovenian and I am American and I am a world citizen. And that's just me. That's that's what I come down to in the end. That's who I really am. I'm one thing by birth and another thing by choice. Just like Josip Broz being born Josip Broz but adopting the spy name Tito because that was really his calling, he didn't stop being Josip Broz. But he became Joseph Bro's Tito. That's who he chose to be. A world citizen is what I choose to be. Thank you for listening, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.